0: Are you satisfied? Good. Now my turn. I'm satisfied. (laughs) Let me outline this evening and the entire week for you. This morning we introduced the reality of what it means to be human. That means that you are made in the image of God as male and as female and that the two genders are focused. One is gender, gender, the female gender, is focused relationally. The male gender is wired for purposes, and God's intention is that they should work as a harmonious team, men and women together serving the Lord Jesus Christ and the body of Christ as a harmonious team, and within marriage as a harmonious team. And the principle is this. Because of sin, what females sometimes innately dislike about men and what men sometimes innately dislike about women, those are the things that God has created into the genders as strengths and not weaknesses. But there is a process of learning the skills to use those strengths, which is what this seminar is all about. Tonight we'll be continuing in Genesis. We'll be talking about how the fall has intuitively, instinctively affected us. Very important. And in this, the instincts of our fallen DNA is one of the talks of this evening. And if you want to read it while I'm speaking, feel free, because American adults can do eight things at once. So I'm quite sure you can do a lot of things, including text your friends and tell them they're missing a great experience tonight. (laughs) Then after about 40 minutes, then Gary Hess, Gary, if you would stand, is one of our team members who will be leading you in a group exercise that should be a lot of fun. You will be moderately uncomfortable, but it will be a lot of fun. It's like skiing. Well, skiing can kill you. That's a bad analogy. But it's exciting and a bit of fun. He'll be leading that. I'll be joining him in that. One of the great discoveries of the modern world is DNA, the discovery that within each cell is our destiny, that controls what we will become. And you are defined by your DNA. What DNA proves is a biblical reality that everyone in this room is part of the unit called humanity. This is critically important. We are not angels, either by creation or by nature. We are human, which means that we have been generated from our forebears. And what has carried on humanity is DNA. But in a very real sense, there is also a spiritual DNA. Because when Adam was tempted and fallen, what he experienced became our internal reality. Our instincts are a replication of Adam's experience in the temptation and the fall. Let's Take a look at this. And this should be encouraging to you because it will describe the disease of sin within. God knows that we have this disease. He's not surprised, nor we should be either. This is the disease we have. In Genesis 3-4, we have the tendency to doubt God. When you doubt God, automatically you have a sense of need. Right? When you doubt God, you automatically become fearful. And you become conscious, very conscious of what you don't have instead of what you have in God. Then, when you doubt God, when we look for a solution because we have a need, we end up loving darkness. Then, because we love darkness, we end up hating each other and we hate ourselves. I honestly believe the most common emotion among human beings is self-hatred. They don't like who they are. They don't want to be around their own hearts. And it is because of this progression, the spiritual DNA that we inherited from Adam, and then as a result, we have to step into life and say within ourselves, I will survive somehow. I have no idea how. But I will survive. And that really is Genesis chapter 3 and the fall. Let's walk through this. And the principle is this. We have physical DNA, but we also have spiritual DNA that we inherited from Adam. The experience that Adam and Eve went through became our reality. What they experienced became what goes on inside of us perpetually. Let's take a look at this. Now the serpent, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent became more crafty, more intelligent than any beast of the field. In Hebrew, the, uh, the implication is he became that way. He was not that way until he became a tool, a foil, a robot for a evil spiritual genius called Satan. He became more crafty, more intelligent than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, Yahweh Elohim had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And that started the process of doubt. Now what's fascinating in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, The Greek word for doubt is not a noun, but a verb. It's an action word, and it's a participle. And the Greek word for doubt literally means to continually re-examine or question. To continually re-examine or question. In the Bible, the Bible says, God on the cross died for who you are, and you have no choice in questioning it. Your only choice is to believe it. And to ask a question is to doom yourself. There are some things we don't question that the Bible proclaims. But most things in the Bible you can ask honest questions about, but here the serpent is starting the process of doubt, suspicion. And here's the principle, at the same second our heart says, will God come through? Will he be faithful? will he take care of me? At the same second, we become aware of what we don't have, right? We become aware of our needs. We become aware of our lacks, and we're haunted by fear. And we're aware of two things. Maybe he won't come true, through. And secondly, I need this. I need that. The irony is, is that Adam and Eve had nothing. They had the Paradise of Eden, plus God. They had no needs whatsoever. But as soon as they started doubting God, they had a sense of need when they had everything. It's like Microsoft, Bill Gates saying, man, I wish I had a dime. You would say, Bill, you're crazy. Well, maybe billionaires don't have dimes. (laughs) I don't know. Doubt God. Need. After doubting God, she then looked at the tree, and notice what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Notice very carefully, all three of those things are are good. If you're a young person here, listen very carefully to this. Good instead of God will kill you. The temptation was not to choose evil. The temptation was the temptation of the tree, of the experience, of benefit and wretchedness. And it wasn't a choice between good and evil. It was a choice that went like this. Choose good and you will become wretched. It wasn't a choice between good and evil. It was a choice between choosing good and over God followed by evil or wretchedness. She looked at the tree and out of her doubt she said, I need it. God is not providing it. I need the food. I need the pleasure of the aesthetic and I need to become wiser even though she was an oxair, an azer, a helper, like God. So, need. Then it proceeded to the love of darkness. Here is the biblical definition of darkness. It's wherever God is not. It's not what is evil. It's simply where God is not. And what Adam and Eve did, they pursued good where God is not. And that becomes part of our DNA. We always try to find solutions that are apart from God, that are not integrated solutions, that are not biblical solutions. And so Adam and Eve ended up loving darkness, looking into darkness for a solution. Now they were pursuing good. This is very important to understand. Good will kill us without God. An education without God will turn you into a fool. Money without God will turn you into a wasteful. Intelligence without God will turn you into a moral cripple. That being the case, and this is the judgment, that the light is coming to the world, and men have loved. And it's the Greek word agape. Men have a passionate delight for that which is not God as their solution for life. For their deeds were worthless. The word for evil is worthless, just worthless. Good stuff, but not ultimately worthwhile. Then the next step in the fall was, I don't like me and I don't like you. If when you look inside yourself and you see doubt of God, you see a sense of deep need, if you see a love of that which is not God, and if you don't like yourself and you don't like a lot of other people, Rejoice, you're normal. God died for you on a cross because he wants to free you from the disease that every one of us has. And we should acknowledge the presence of that disease because that makes us look for the deliverer. But if you don't think you have this disease, you are a benighted person. Hate me and hate you, what happened? They ate of the fruit. They went after good. The fall occurred. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They were profoundly uncomfortable. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then when God showed up, they went and hid in the woods. For each other, they needed fig leaves. For God, they needed the forest. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they cover their nakedness? Chapter 1, chapter 2 tells us they were naked and they weren't ashamed. Now they're profoundly ashamed. Why? It was their first experience of shame. When a young man or a young woman, a teenager, experiences shame, they radiate shame. It's like they're radioactive. And they know everybody in the room knows they're ashamed, knows that they're defective, they're no good. And they radiate it. Because Adam and Eve weren't used to shame, they did a very childlike, foolish thing. They covered themselves over with leaves because it shows the childlikeness of their reaction. Now, these are brilliant people, but they've never experienced shame, radioactive shame before. So they covered themselves over with fig leaves, which says they're not sophisticated at all. Now, in our culture, an axe murderer can look you in the face and say, I have nothing to be ashamed of. We have become experts at not showing radioactive shame, although all of us experience it. And if you don't, see a good Christian therapist, because you should. Hate me and hate you. And, verse 12, and the man said, the woman who I came out with Hebrew poetry concerning, the woman whom you gave to me that you have told me is a divine helper, a helper like God. The woman whom you gave to be with me, you gave her to me. I didn't pick her. She gave me from the tree and Oh, incidentally, minor detail, I ate. And the Hebrew text is beautiful because in the Hebrew text, the last word in the sentence is I. Adam mentions everybody else but himself until he's forced to finally say, oh, incidentally, I had a crumb too. And the fall occurred in him. But notice now he's attacking his wife. Notice now they're hiding themselves from each other in deep discomfort. The The primary emotion of the fall is not guilt, it's shame. It's running into darkness. It's loving darkness. The primary liberation that the gospel offers is walking into the light through the blood of Jesus Christ and being fully and infinitely accepted by God the Father because God the Son died for you. You have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. Take the garbage into God's presence and he'll look you square in the face and say, finally, an honest Christian, somebody who will tell me the truth about themselves and is not running into darkness, but running into light. That's the privilege of the child of God. The fall leads to a love of darkness. Liberation leads to a love of the light where we can say to God, here I am, warts and all, and God says, I love you, warts and all. It's a wonderful thing. Then, hate me, hate you, and then the woman is destined to have babies with trouble. She will survive, the race will survive, but the race will survive with pain. Then to the man, cursed is the ground because of you in toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It is really important to be able to identify inwardly the DNA of the fall because then you don't have to lie to yourself and say, oh, I never doubt God. Oh, I never feel needy and naked and empty. Instead, you can look honestly inside and say, oh, I guess I've got the disease. And now I can go to God for help, because I can see the symptoms of the disease. And the disease is, again, doubt, need, love of darkness, hatred of self and others, and an incredible drive to survive in the face of all of that defective Stuff. This is important. Please review this, take notes on it, meditate on it. It's really important to understand. Something else occurred though in the collapse. As you go over to Genesis, almost immediately four ineffective communication, miscommunication habits appear. Almost immediately, if you look at Genesis and the text will be going up on the screen, four miscommunication problems immediately arise. It's quite fascinating. The fall occurs and then miscommunication breaks out. We have an amazing set of illustrations of how people miscommunicate in this section. And if you will, look at your notes And those miscommunication habits are described right here on one, two, three, four pages. And again, feel free to be reading these pages as we're going along, because in about 30 minutes, you'll be participating in an exercise dealing with these miscommunication habits. When our daughter was about three, we were living in Daly City, Pastor Howard, Carolyn, and I were friends, our friends, friends way back then, and we were pastoring. Carolyn and I were pastoring, and we lived in one of these Daily City San Francisco Victorians, where you lived on the second floor of the garage was the first floor, and we had a rule for a three-year-old daughter, never go downstairs alone, because it was a concrete floor. And it was an old house with a rickety set of steps. Never go down the steps alone. Sunday night, we're having a church fellowship, and what do I hear? My daughter yells from downstairs. Oh, she's downstairs. She had gone downstairs, and she had tripped on the last couple of stairs. She hit the concrete, screamed. I went down, picked her up, grabbed her, She was all right, but she was crying, and then she immediately said, the dog pushed me. (laughs) Now, she did not have to go to a miscommunication seminar. Genetically, she was fully primed to lie. We as human beings, we have to go to a seminar to learn how to communicate. We do not have to learn how to miscommunicate. We are artists from the womb. And then she, after she said, the dog pushed me, here's the reality. The dog was in the front room. (laughs) The dog was near its death. The dog was arthritic. And the dog was blind. But anybody can be a fall guy at a moment of need. (laughs) When we come into these miscommunication habits, it is really important that they are the response of our DNA under stress. And let's see what these miscommunication habits are. There's four that pop up, rationalizing, placating, distracting, and blaming. These categories are from Virginia Satir. My wife, Carol, was working on a counseling degree, and I would read all the books that that she brought home. And at the same time, I was taking courses in the Hebrew language, Biblical Hebrew. I was translating the book of Proverbs, and in one of the books that Carol brought home, a counseling book, it was about miscommunication habits. At the same time, I'm translating from the book of Proverbs, and I find the same four miscommunication habits in the book of Proverbs that this brilliant woman, a non-Christian Virginia Satir, isolated. Four miscommunication habits. I've spent over two dozen years studying these miscommunication habits, and I'm convinced there's only four. There's not 80, there's only four. And there are physiological reasons why there are only four. We don't have time to go into that, but these four popped up immediately after the fall and in the midst of the fall. Placating, rationalizing, distracting, blaming. First one is rationalizing. Now the serpent was more intelligent than all the animals that the Lord God had made. And the serpent asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered, the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God has said you shall not eat from it or even touch it lest you die. What's happening there? It's called rationalizing. The serpent and the woman are treating God like an object, like a safe way they're not treating him as a person. They're just discussing what they can get out of him and not the relationship they have to him. That's the essence of rationalizing. Rationalizing is when we step back from relationships, we protect ourselves from hurt, we emotionally shut down, and we see what we can get. It's called rationalizing. What Adam and Eve and the serpent did, they all stood back from God and said, We need to talk about God. We need to figure out what his motives are. We need to figure out what he's holding back. We need to put him under the microscope. It's called rationalizing, stepping back from relationships. And we have examples of that in Scripture. It continues on in the text, and then they talk about The tree was good for food. Notice they're talking about benefit, but not relationships. Pleasing to the eyes, desirable for gaining wisdom. If you looked into the rest of Scripture, you would find this pattern of miscommunication in many, many places. Luke 18 is the description of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus snapped at him and said, why do you call me good? Now the disciples put their hands over their faces and they thought, another rich donor that he's offended. (laughs) Jesus is normally a very polite person, but he nailed this guy. He said, I don't want to be called good by you. You call me good because you want something out of me. Good teacher, tell me what I have to do to have eternal life. I understand you're an eternal life dispenser. And being a good Pharisee, I have to work for it, so tell me what to do. Then Jesus looked at him and said, I have just been complimented by an idiot. Why do you call me good? The man came to Jesus to get something out of him, And Jesus said, sell all the stuff you've got. And if you want eternal life, follow me, get to know me, and you'll have eternal life. Because eternal life is a relationship, John 17, 3. A relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That is eternal life. It's a relationship. But rationalizing. Doubting Thomas. Whoop, whoop. Dangerous clicker here. And then John 20, 24 through 27 is doubting Thomas who steps back from the disciples and said, I've seen a crucifixion, it's a mess. I want to isolate myself. I don't need relationships. Jesus hunted them down and said, you do need a relationship. Put your finger through the hole in my hand. Put your fist in the hole in my chest and believe because you could have all the evidence in the world and still be unbelieving, still doubting. Put your fist in my chest. And even with your fist in my chest, you still have to choose to believe because all the evidence in the world will not convince a person to choose to believe. Only the person can choose to believe. It's called rationalizing. Then the next one is placating. And this is actually the shortest one, and it's kind of implied. Because when you read Genesis chapter 3 and the story of the temptation, Eve is the major figure, Adam is the minor figure, but Adam is the one that the fall occurs in, and Eve, the great accomplice to Adam, is the one who is duped by Satan because you should never have a debate with an evil genius. It's a bad idea. And even though she was a helper like God, you'd never have a debate with an evil genius. And she lost the debate. All they had to do was say, let's wait a half an hour until God shows up. They didn't have to be bright. They didn't have to be intelligent. All they had to do was wait. But instead, they had a discussion with an evil genius And then after Eve ate, she turned to her husband and said, eat. And what he did was placate. Placate. And that's the great danger in marriage for men, that they go passive. They quit investing. They quit caring. They go passive. The great danger the grand purposer becomes passive and becomes a placator instead of a lover and a compassionate individual. Placating. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fearful cowardice, but instead a spirit of a sound mind, and do not be ashamed of me for what I am doing in the preaching of the gospel. Paul tells Timothy, don't placate, don't give in to the emotion of fear that goes with placating. A placater is controlled by fearful anxiety and says what others want to hear. Distracting. Distracting is a stress response when we're profoundly uncomfortable with ourselves and we change the subject by laughter, by questions, by silliness, by acting insane, all kinds of things to keep people from discovering the pain within. And what Adam and Eve did in the fall when the grand and powerful emotion of shame burst out of their hearts they tried to hide it from each other and God the third miscommunication habit is when you are in such deep pain you don't know what to do with it except think to yourself I need to keep people away from my pain this often results in a dysfunctional family background comes from a dysfunctional family background where there's so much pain you don't know what to do with it and all you want people to do is to stay away from it because you want to desperately stay away from it. Distracting. Staying away from it. The grand example of this is the woman at the well, John chapter 4. The woman, because she had been married a number of times and was living with a guy, had gone through a life of brokenheartedness and abuse. Jesus met her and said, I can put a well of water inside of you springing up to eternal life. And I also know everything about you. You've had five husbands and you're living with a guy now who's not your husband. She tried to change the subject and said, where should I go to church? Where should I worship? And Jesus said, you don't have to worry about figuring that out because God's pursuing you. God is seeking those who are his worshipers. He is seeking you. You don't have to worry about the church. You just have to worry about being found. And then he does something quite remarkable with the woman. Three times in a row, it's the only place in the Bible where this happens, he tells the woman, God's the father. Then he says it again, God's "God's the father. Then he says it again, God's a father what the woman needed was to be reparented by God and everyone from a dysfunctional family background everyone from a performance-based or confused family background or anyone from a healthy family background every one of us needs to be reparented by God but some more than others And so the distractor, and then the one we're really familiar with, blaming. In Genesis 3, the man replied, the woman who you gave to me, gave me to eat. Then the the Lord God addresses the woman, and the woman says, the serpent tricked me into it, so I ate it. Now, when she says, he tricked me into it, don't think Eve is a dummy. Eve, I'm absolutely convinced, was a genius. She was a helper like God. But never, never get into a discussion with an evil genius. Strategic mistake. Brilliant woman. Utterly gifted woman. Relationally acute woman. But do not get into a debate with an evil genius. So what have we seen? The blamer, Jonah chapter 4, Jonah's a great illustration of a blamer because in Jonah chapter 4, he blames God for all of the world's problems. Has deep hurt, unresolved anger, oftentimes is emotionally indifferent to what other people are going through and often surprised by God's grace. Jonah, if you remember the story, was just stunned that God could forgive the Ninevites. He wanted the Ninevites nuked, not blessed. So what you have occurring in Genesis chapter 3 are four different miscommunication habits that are tension responses. Now, this is important. The reason people miscommunicate is because they're usually stressed. And typically, they'll go in one of four directions when they're miscommunicating and they're under stress. That is why the fruit of the Spirit is so important. It keeps us calm so we don't miscommunicate. Happy, loving people don't miscommunicate. When a couple, a married couple, is calm and happy and relaxed, they can have great conversations. But stress them out, somebody will start blaming, somebody will start placating, somebody will start distracting, somebody will start doing the fourth one. And so stress will produce this. What's interesting, when we deal with general audiences, the placator and the blamer are similar to each other because they want a relationship. The placator says, tell me what you want to hear and I'll tell you. The blamer says, tell me you're an idiot and we'll be friends. (laughs) They want a relationship. The rationalizer and the distractor don't want a relationship, they will communicate the rationalizer, I'm standing 10 feet from you and I call that a friendship. But let's see what we can get out of each other because I'm nervous about connecting on a deep level. And it's the same for the distractor. The rationalizer and distractor in our studies usually come out of a really stressed out background. The top two habits are garden variety habits that most human beings can get themselves into. The bottom two are usually reactions to long-term stress. And then to finish the description, the emotions that drive these four miscommunication habits for the blamer, it's unresolved anger. For the placator, it's anxiety. For the rationalizer, it's actually emotional shutdown. And for the distractor, it's deep discomfort concerning the self. Here's the fascinating thing. If you did a biblical study or a psychological study, you would discover that human beings... Have three major negative emotions anxiety, hurt, anger, and shame. The reason for those emotions are actually how we are designed physiologically. We don't have an endless pool of emotions, but when we mishandle our emotions, particularly anger, anxiety, and shame, It forces us to instinctively miscommunicate. Then the fourth one is a gift that God has given us where we can turn our emotions off. But a person who gets into the habit of rationalizing has overused the gift that God has given us. There are places where you just have to shut your emotions off and do what you need to do. But that's not all through life. That's only for certain places in life. But that gift and that skill becomes overused. And also there's a place for anger. There's a place for anxiety. But here's the important reality. Those are emotions that should not be institutionalized. They should not become a habit of life. Because then all people do is react instead of communicate.